we start with the soaring COVID-19 case count in the United States. The threat of the Delta variant uh, is really a major concern here in Canada as well and around the world. Should people be required to get vaccinated in order to travel or to go to a movie or a concert or a bar or a restaurant? Vaccine passports, is that really the direction the world is going in now. Proof of vaccine vaccination now required in France for a lot of activities. Manitoba has started a vaccine passport program to visit museums, casinos, movie theaters. Is this the direction Canada should go in? Okay, got a great guest standing by here for you. Uh, Katrina Plamondon from uh, the professor of the School of Nursing at UBC Okanagan. Just before I speak to her, have a listen to this report now from CBS News. Now you'll hear here about the soaring COVID case count in the southern United States, especially in Louisiana. A lot of people getting sick. Why? Because they are unvaccinated. Just have a listen to this. Louisiana has just reported more than 5,000 COVID infections. That is the worst since the winter surge. Hospitalizations have more than tripled. I can't believe we admitted a whole floor of patients last night. Just 36% of Louisiana's residents are fully vaccinated. And now, vaccine hesitancy is meeting COVID reality. Did you get to a point when you were scared? I'm still scared. PJ Perry says he and most of his family had refused to get the COVID vaccine. Where have you gotten most of your news from regarding the vaccine? It's all on Facebook and, you know, people sending you stuff. Now, this 48-year-old father says as soon as he leaves this hospital, he is getting vaccinated. Okay, that report there from David Benioff from CBS News. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, uh, Katrina Plamondon. She's a professor with the School of Nursing at UBC Okanagan. Katrina, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Okay. A lot of people, we hear a report like that is very disturbing about people who are getting sick, especially with this Delta variant when they're unvaccinated. We want to get more people vaccinated. And a lot of people looking at vaccine passports as the answer. Do you think that's the way to go? Like people should be required to get a vaccine in order to attend, let's say, a concert, a restaurant, a movie theater? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think this has been a conversation that's been evolving over many months now about whether passports are the vaccine passports are the right way to go. Um, and I think that there's sort of different contexts in which they might serve a role, but I don't think that the passports themselves are going to be motivating enough to address the vaccine hesitancy that we just heard of from that story from Louisiana. I think um, there's sort of different issues. And, and the vaccine passports themselves I think are are messy. There's a lot of gray area. They yeah. um, they kind of come into conflict with privacy laws and rights. Um, they raise questions about storage, data stewardship, and like where our data, our health data, is being stored and used. Um, so I think it's it's sort of context dependent, and and I really don't think that vaccine passports are the solution to the issues of equity that are actually at the center of um, of much of the the current context of covid yeah no it's interesting to see where the direction this is going in the world i mean if you take a look at israel one of the first countries to bring in a a vaccine passport system there internally domestically in the country now you have france uh doing similar and there have been protests and counter protests in france over over vaccine vaccine passport rules there um eric clapton uh, the rock and roller announcing he will not play any concerts at any venues where people are required to show proof of vaccines to attend. 
So, so I guess Eric Clapton won't be playing any concerts in, in France anytime soon. What do you think of that? Like, could there be like a backlash to vaccine passports? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think that it kind it comes into conflict with um, with human rights, uh, with our privacy, um, especially when it's private venues who are requiring people to show proof or or even to submit proof of their vaccine status. So it's a, it's private health data, and I think there's a very different context when private businesses or events are asking for that kind of information from people versus. Um, asking for that kind of information from non-citizens entering a country. There's a long history of, of that kind of um, request for proof of vaccination or proof of health status when you're entering a, a different country and crossing a border or right. at like public health institutions or schools or hospitals or places, workplaces where your vaccine status actually poses direct um, implications for the population that you're serving. Those kinds of environments um, there are mechanisms for storing that data and precedent, and we've already navigated those kinds of um, uh, legal tensions that can present. But when it comes to private businesses or v- events, I, I don't think that this is going to be uncomplicated. There's a lot of gray zone, and I, it's really interesting to me to hear that um, someone would use their platform, their sort of influence as, a, as an artist, as a musician, to, to make a stand about, um, I, I think they'll continue to see this as people making a stand about what, what they believe in um, and using their influence to sort of make uh, that very loud and clear. And I, I yeah. think when it comes to these big events too, um, really the responsibility for whether an event like that is appropriate falls to public health guidance and so whatever's happening with COVID in that particular location. So um, what's happening in terms of, of how many people are getting sick, how many people are getting seriously sick and what the vaccine coverage is, all these things should be taken into consideration um, about about decisions right. about whether a, a concert or the Olympics and having people in an, an attendance at a public event should be even be happening. Yeah, I think you raise some really great points. And there's a there's a really important distinction to be made between international travel restrictions requiring vaccination or proof of vaccination. I mean, that's a system that had already been in place in a lot of countries, like in, in many countries, you have to show require uh, you're required to show proof that you've been vaccinated against yellow fever, for example, to travel yeah. into different countries. So we are going to see countries bring in rules for fully vaccinated people, people to be fully vaccinated before they can cross borders. We just saw this this week with Canada mm-hmm. announcing that American visitors would have to be double vaccinated to come into Canada starting next month. But it's a, it's a different thing completely when you're talking about domestic rules and what freedoms people will be allowed to exercise domestically going to a restaurant going to a concert going to a movie should you be required to show proof of vaccine let me play this here for you katrina get your thoughts this is prime minister justin trudeau and you're going to hear him here say that it's up to the provinces uh to bring in these rules if they want trudeau the provinces will be making determinations. As, as you point out, we've seen Quebec, for example, move forward with uh, a, an internal vaccine passport. Uh, Alberta has announced that it will not be doing that. Different provinces will be doing different things. Where the federal government has a role to play and where we are uh, looking is in terms of uh, vaccine certification for international travel. Okay, yeah, so he's saying the federal government will just be concerned about international travel. It'll be up to the provinces to make their own internal provincial rules. Could we end up seeing like a patchwork of rules across the country when it comes to vaccine requirements? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, different provinces will have different legislative frameworks and also different provinces have different privacy laws. So I think there's a there's a very interesting statement that was put out by the um, federal, provincial and territorial privacy commissioners that I think will offer some sort of blanket guidance about the privacy implications of these uh, vaccine passports. So some of that guidance um, is applicable, but like across the country, but but different provinces already have different nuances and requirements for their privacy laws. So this will look different in each province. um, And I think there'll be a bit of a trial and error period. I'm I'm curious to see how many human rights violations or complaints um, are made uh, by people who are refused access to services or events or um, private uh, businesses. And I'm also curious to see um, what kinds of, of, um, of, nuanced complication come when different kinds of of organizations or businesses are trying to ask for something different. So I've, I've for right. example, in Manitoba, I believe, or is it Saskatchewan? I'm not, I'm not quite sure now. One of the prairie provinces is right now thinking about a digital passport where you would just show um, a confirmation screen on your, on your phone or something like that. This raises questions about equity in terms of who has a smartphone and who doesn't, um, uh, who has the right to, to demand that and require that. Um, okay. I think it's going to be quite complicated and, uh, and I think that we'll see very different approaches in different provinces, just okay. like we did with COVID policy. Okay, we're watching it very closely. Thanks a lot for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a great day. All right, here we go now with the future of public golf courses in Vancouver and other cities as well. In Vancouver, there are three municipally owned golf courses. Should they be converted into parks? Or how about affordable housing? I mean, this is an idea that is catching on in some cities in the United States. And check this out. In Australia, the Victoria Park Golf Course, owned by the city of Brisbane, they shut it down. They reopened it as a park. Have a listen to this report now from Channel 7 News in Australia. Driving off the tee or sinking a 10-footer on the green. Lockdown exercise allowing local golfers to savour their final moments at the Victoria Park golf course. We're really sad. We, we love playing here. We've played here every week for about four or five years. For Lionel Outen, its 89-year history is very much his own. My grandmother was um, club champion many years ago. How far did the apple fall from the tree with yourself? Oh, a long way. <laughs> From tomorrow, the 18-hole course will become public parkland. After that, work will begin on revamping the 64-hectare area, complete with lagoons, walkways, amphitheatres and even community gardens. The wider community is going to have a nice park long-term to to utilise, so uh, a win win long-term, I think. The driving range, pro shop and putt-putt will remain as part of the park's master plan. The project will be Brisbane City's biggest new park in 50 years, but locals fear the prized parkside location will only result in more property development in the area. That's just a concern that we all have, and we just wish they could keep at least, say, nine holes here, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. Local golfers now looking for greener pastures. Okay, that report there from Channel 7 News in Brisbane, Australia. They converted their locally owned municipal golf course into a park, as you heard there. Should we do the same thing in Vancouver? Let's talk about it now with my guest, Brent Totter, and Brent is the former city planner for Vancouver, and he's an urbanist, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. How you doing, Brent? 
Good. I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? I'm, I'm great, Brent. Thanks for doing this. You've been tweeting about this issue. I first heard about this park, this golf course getting converted to a park in Australia from your Twitter feed, which I uh, recommend to people. What do you think about this idea? Well, I know Brisbane well. I've advised them uh, over the last number of years and their chief planner there. But I haven't been involved in this specifically, but I keep close tabs on it. And I was pretty impressed to hear not only about the idea, but the way they thought about the idea. It wasn't a simple, almost lazy conversation of what do I like better, a golf course or affordable housing, a golf course or a park. It was part of a larger vision, a big vision about how to make the whole central part of Brisbane better. They were, they're building a lot of housing. They're adding a lot of new people to the downtown. And the area is park deficient. And so they looked around to see where they could get land. And not surprisingly, it's incredibly hard to get land in central areas. And they had this big golf course that had existed for about 100 years. So, um, and they asked themselves the serious question, what's our higher priority? Uh, what, what's, what, are, what best meets our urgent needs? What's the best strategic move to strengthen the entire central area, its tax right. base, everything? So it was a big strategic visionary conversation. It wasn't a kind of a, what do you like better, this or that? Yeah, no, it was kind of interesting to, to dig into this uh, issue there in that city because when I first heard about this, I thought, okay, so they're just kicking the golfers off the golf course and then saying to the public, well, you can just come in and just go for a nice walk or something. They didn't just do that. Like, they redeveloped the park or the golf course into a park because so they've got, like, an amphitheater there and they've got a lagoon. And they and it looks quite beautiful, right? Like, do you think that is a is a better public use of that land overall? Like, will more people use it as a result? Well, to be clear, what they've done initially is is almost what you said. They they closed the park and they, opened, and they welcomed people and said, come use the park. And they've got a four-year plan. So the things you've described aren't there yet. They've, they're okay. investing, I think, $83 million dollars to, to bring all those things to the park. But immediately from day one, they just said, we've got all these people who need green space. Uh, let's just let them use the space. And so that's what they did immediately. But it's sort of step one of a four-year vision to create that larger park, 64 hectares, the largest new park in five decades in Brisbane, one of the largest in Australia. So it's a huge mm. opportunity. But to answer your question, I think what they thought about was uh, what are the numbers in terms of part, uh, 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 golf usage, but more importantly, wh- where do people go now to get green space? And there was this yeah. intense demand during the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, uh, for green space. And they had this sense that the park, the, the, the land would just be much more efficiently used. A lot more people would use it every single day. And there was a very strong demand for public life, public space, to strengthen the larger vision of the downtown. So a cost-benefit analysis of who will use it, how many people will use it every day, what kind of uh, uh, advantage does it create for the strength of the downtown as a whole. But by all of those standards, it really was a no-brainer because although uh, a lot of folks out there like golf, golf is one of the least efficient uses of land. And that's, that can be tolerable out in the suburbs and out in the rural areas and outside the city, where, frankly, low use, efficient use of land is kind of the norm. But when you're right in the central area where land efficiency, using land for a lot of things, for a lot of people is, is critical, it just wouldn't fly. And so they, they thought about it from that perspective and said, we need to make better use of this public asset.
Okay, we got three municipal golf courses in Vancouver. We got the Fraser View, the Langara, the McCleary golf courses. What do you think of those? I mean, do you think the city should consider doing something similar with those properties? Well, I think cities, every city, should consider that. And and the but the answer isn't an automatic yes or no. And I know there's folks out there who are going to say automatic. Let's protect golf, and other folks who will say automatic. No, we should have affordable housing, or we should have park space. What I support is cities taking a fresh look based on their priorities, their urgencies, the crises that the cities are facing uh, that badly need land. Look at the geographic location of the different parks, what kind of advantage uh, it would create for the public interest if they were converted, and have that conversation in a strategic way, case by case. Um, I'm not a big fan of just saying, let's get rid of golf and then replace it with all affordable housing, because that's, that's great for Twitter, but that's not really good <laughs> for city planning. Uh, what I'd rather have is a strategic conversation on a case by case basis, and the answer may be different for different golf courses. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, Brent, from Patrick Condon. He's a professor at the University of BC. He was my guest on the sh- on an earlier show talking about this topic, and here he is making the case for converting municipal golf courses into social housing. Have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. If you do the breakouts, which we did, the value of that land is somewhere around twelve billion dollars and rising. Whoa. Yeah, unbelievable. And yeah. and it's the only large acreage that we have. And our suggestion was to take only half of that acreage and turn it into three kinds of housing, market housing, co-op housing, and social housing. And you would use the market housing to cross-subsidize the, uh, the, the social housing. The co-op housing pays for itself. And if you did that, you could get tens of thousands of affordable units that are unaffordable otherwise. Okay, Patrick Condon there from UBC talking about the three municipal municipally owned golf courses in Vancouver. He said the land there in those three golf courses, Brent, worth $12 billion. My God, that is huge. Your thoughts? Well, I can't confirm the numbers, but what I like about the thought process is you're doing a cost-benefit analysis. You're not just saying, well, is golf popular, yes or no, which is not a great way to make decisions on multi-billion dollar public assets. You're having a conversation about best bang for the buck. Where, what is the best decision in the public interest uh, based on the actual crises that we have? You know, we have a climate crisis. We have an affordable housing crisis. Last time I checked, we don't have a golf crisis. So those are not equal things in the conversation about uh, our urgent, critical public needs. But it's also, as Patrick said, it's it's about getting full use and value out of public land, which we don't right. have a lot of, and we don't have a lot in large land chunks, if you will. What, what about? So absolutely, we should be having this kind of conversation. Right. What about the people who use the golf course now? And of course, you'll get an argument from them. In many cases, they're seniors who are out getting some some badly needed exercise. These golf courses were a lifeline for a lot of people during the COVID pandemic. It's one of the few things, sports, they could participate in. Demand is high. I mean, if you talk to the people at the Vancouver Park Board, they'll tell you that you know their golf courses are busy. People are booking tee times. They're out there. They're using these facilities, and they're very successful and popular. What about the people who use the golf courses now? Well, certainly demand is high. Is, uh, and yeah. interestingly, the demand wasn't particularly high in Brisbane, I've heard. It's been trailing off as other things become more popular. But demand is high, I, I hear, in Canada. But that's in large part because of the inefficiency of the land area. We, it takes a lot of land and accommodates relatively few people. So that's going to translate usually into high demand. 
But here's the point. I don't, I don't say to anybody that they're wrong when they say that golf is popular, that uh, it has a value to people. All of that is true. But the hard part about city planning is, is that reality, is that truth more important than all the other truths in terms of our critical need for affordable housing? Or, you know, uh, trading a golf course for affordable housing is particularly polarizing. This is why I find the Brisbane example more uh, difficult to just uh, wave off because it's it's just opening up the green space for more people. It's actually providing more opportunity for people to enjoy the same amount of green space. So whether it's a trade-off for housing, whether it's a trade-off for parks, I think it can be absolutely true that people love golf. It can be absolutely true that people value it and get a great benefit from it. But from a city planning perspective, you have to weigh that against all the other advantages and challenges that the city has. And that means sometimes you end up going in the direction of your higher priorities because City planning is all about priorities. Okay, really interesting issue, Brent. Thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. It is the eve of the Tokyo Olympics. The opening ceremonies of the Tokyo Games are tomorrow, and every time another Olympic Games roll around, it brings back memories for British Columbians, of course, of the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver and Whistler. Now, think about this. Was it so nice should we do it twice? Should Vancouver bid to host the Olympic Games again? Let's discuss now with my guest, John Furlong. He was the president and CEO of the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. John, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. It's nice to talk to you again, and uh, we're looking. I'm looking forward to the Tokyo Olympics, but man, these are going to be a weird set of Olympic Games here. You talk about a rocky road for these Olympics in Tokyo what are your thoughts here with these uh, these games coming up uh, starting tomorrow in uh, Japan? You know, Mike, I feel for Japan in a very big way. You know, they've been dealt a pretty harsh card here. Uh, they've been navigate trying to navigate this road for the better part of eight years, and through no fault of their own, they're dealing with this virus, and I, I think doing everything they possibly can to... You know, to produce a result, and I hope that the games end up being kind to Japan. You know, it sort of brings back a bit of a memory for us. I don't know if you remember, but as we were getting close to uh, the opening of the 2010 games, uh, you know, we never anticipated having a problem with having no snow. And come Christmas right. in 2009, we didn't have any. And we were faced with the possibility of being the only country in Olympic history to have to cancel Olympic events. And, of course, it sent us into a... You know, we put on a brave face, but internally it was a pretty panicked situation trying to solve the problem. So the tension they're feeling is intense, and all they want to do is do a good job, uh, you know, uh, deliver what they promised, uh, have have a a big impact on the morale of the Japanese public and, you know, send a message to the world about what Japan is capable of. I think, Mike, that two weeks from now, I think the world will believe that Japan performed a miracle. I think they're going to do a great job. They're very good organizers. They have experience at the, the Olympic level. They've done it many times. They've done the World Cup. They've done World Rugby. They're very good at this. It's just that they've been dealt this horrible card and not easy for them. And I feel for them in a very big way. And I hope it works out. Yeah, I hope it works out too. And uh, there's been a lot of calls from some people to cancel the games or suspend them or postpone them again. Uh, we've had COVID cases on the rise again in Tokyo, but it looks like they're still going to go forward here. I think it'd be difficult to cancel them at this late date, I would imagine. So I hope I, it goes. 
Go ahead, John. I don't think there's any. Cha- I don't think there's any chance of them being cancelled now. I think. Yeah. I think the Japanese have to maintain, you know, an open mind about all of that. But I think we're past go, Mike. I mean, there's events have started. Athletes are competing already. I think the main how they maintain this bubble is going to be key. Uh, the bubble. The athletes are used to these bubbles because in order to qualify to get to the Olympic Games. You know, they've all had to compete in qualifiers inside these bubbles. So if they get good cooperation from the athletes and the National Olympic Committees of the world, which they will get, um, I think they'll manage this and be able to deliver the Games without too much hardship, I think. Um, Notwithstanding that there won't be any fans in the stands, um, at at least that part, I think, will go should go quite well. Okay, imagine trying to run an Olympic Games with no no spectators or fans in uh, watching and in the stands. It'd just be so strange. I mean, when you think back to 2010, uh, the fans were just integral to the whole Vancouver experience, and everyone that was the whole city was just like big month long party. Um, can you imagine? Can you comment on just like the importance of the fans, the fan experience, when you think back to 2010? Well, I could not have imagined uh, us delivering the Olympics with no fans. I mean, the whole point was to deliver an experience to the Canadian public and fans and have people in the stands and have these celebration zones and people gathered around televisions across the country every night. And so it certainly is not great. But I think for, I mean, Japan has been preparing for this for quite a while. They've sort of known this was coming and I think they put on a brave face. I think now it'll just be a case of just how the athletes react to this and how you know the way that they perform and, and how they conduct themselves and how they respond to what the Japanese have tried to do to give them the experience they've spent their lives preparing for. So I don't think it will be, you know, the same experience, but I think for many of these athletes they will look look back on this as a as a, a very big part of their lives and, and they'll have warm memories of it even though they won't have the same memories that previous Olympic athletes have had. Right. Speaking to John Furlong, the president and CEO of the twenty ten Vancouver Winter Olympics. All right, John, you recently gave a presentation to the Vancouver Board of Trade. Uh, about the potential for Vancouver to host the Olympic Games again in 2030. What is the status of this? So the work is continuing, Mike. I mean, basically, we started out by trying to answer a question that we got asked about, could we do it again? Should we do it again? Could we do it again is easy to answer. Of course we could. Should we is the bigger question. And so we've spent some time thinking about uh, whether or not that's realistic. And the view we have is that we could deliver the Olympic Games without having the requirement of capital investment from government, except that what we're trying to do is avoid just doing, you know, suggesting that a repeat of 2010 would be enough. We started there. Uh, because, you know, the, we just simply used what we did in 2010, do it again, you know, try to extend, you know, the value of the investment you made back then. But the idea here is can we, given the new Olympic rules and how the IOC is accommodating different ideas, that could we spread this across the province and are there facilities across the province in place that could be used that are as good or better than the ones we had in 2010? The simple answer to that question is there are. Um, we've visited with a bunch of communities. We've talked to the government. I would say people seem excited, keen, open-minded to the idea. So we're now putting it to the test, trying to develop a a schematic of what this might look like. And so later this year, I think we'll be in a position to see what such a plan would look like. But in this scenario, Mike, it wouldn't be one host city the way we had in 2010 with two venue cities. Everybody would be sort of a co-host. So instead of three communities, there would be maybe eight or nine. 
um, with the whole objective of trying to make sure that any costs that the organization faces are accommodated from the funds generated by the organization itself. Now, this isn't to say that government might not decide to do things around the games, but we believe that the venue infrastructure in the province is quite rich and that we can yeah. pull it off. So that's okay. the thinking and the planning, and now we're in that phase. Okay, it's a very intriguing idea, and and the argument that we could do the games again at a at a minimal cost because we have a lot of the infrastructure already in place. Like, there's been some analysis that if you take a look at the existing uh, facilities, like the uh, uh, the Olympic Oval in Richmond, uh, wouldn't some of these buildings require some significant retrofitting? to bring them up to no, Olympic it's status. Great, it's, a great, it's a great observation, Mike, and, and there will be some of that needed. But, but the way we've sort of approached this is because we are doing this for the second time, quite a bit of the planning infrastructure that we needed for 2010, we don't need. For example, we don't need a construction department, which it was in place for years and years. So the feeling is that we can pick up those costs from inside the operations of the games. So if you go back to 2010, 91% of the operations of the games was private sector, 9% was government. So the feeling is that there would be enough economies in the way we would do it again, and we can shorten the time frame to do it again because we've done the planning work before uh, to find an ability to do this. So we're going through the exercise right now to play this out uh, and, and to be able to show government and communities that, in fact, this is possible. We think it can be done. We have pretty good talent working on this right now and, and we're optimistic you know we'll see but I, I i feel pretty good that this is going to end up in a good place okay what about an olympic village wouldn't you have to build a new olympic village because the old village are like condos now yeah so the, the answer to that is what we've sort of said to government is if you are so inclined or are and said the same to the city if you're so inclined to try to align a housing social housing project with the games great We'd be very happy to be part of that, but this. Is, but we also believe that we can house athletes at universities, hotels, which is now uh, allowed. In fact, there's some athletes in hotels in Japan and uh, Cortina in, in Milan. Cortina, there's going to be athletes in hotels. So there are other options, and in the communities that we're talking to, there are university dormitories. I don't know if you remember, Mike, but in the initial planning for Vancouver 2010, we were going to be at UBC. The athlete village right. idea came along later. So we're trying to make sure that we can live up to this idea that we can do it with no investment. But if government wants to use the games as a way to bring funding partners together to achieve some of these targets they have, like housing, social housing, then obviously the games could be part of helping bring that about. How big a shot in the arm would another Olympic Games be for B.C., Vancouver and Canada, especially as we emerge from the pandemic? I, Mike, I think it'd be huge. I mean, we, we've I've, we've run this by the tourism industry for starters, and I haven't heard a negative voice on this. The other thing about it is the Olympic Games comes with a substantial, you know, just cost for the better way of putting it, a bag of cash. We have money comes from the private sector in very large numbers. Uh, we had 76 marketing partners for Vancouver 2010, all invested heavily in the game. So, so roughly what will come with the project is about $3 billion into the economy, mostly generated from outside of BC. At a time when there are no projects, and except right now, I mean, it's all been left to government to kind of get us out of this COVID. So the thinking here is that maybe this can help. And certainly it's a project that has that kind of reach. Um, 
the marketing power, I think we all would agree, is pretty powerful. And from, from a tourism standpoint, one of the ways we've been talking to communities about this is, to, is saying that in 2010, you know, the magic of the Olympics came to Vancouver. But in 2030, we're thinking that the magic of BC can come to the Olympics. So spread it out and let the, okay. the tourism value be north, south, east, and west, and not just over this small part of the lower mainland. Because if you were to do that again... I think people would resist it and say that's just not fair and it's not reasonable. We need to do more with this if we possibly can. Okay, well, we're going to follow it closely and we'll see what happens. John Furlong, thanks for being a guest on the show today. Appreciate your thoughts. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks.